Hello everyone, my name is Vuk and you're listening to the Anablock podcast. This show is exploration of enterprise software, technology and business. We share behind the scenes stories of successful people in the world of technology. When we don't record podcasts, we support clients with implementations of Salesforce applications. For more information about us, please visit anablock.com. Thanks for listening and enjoy this episode. Hey, Peter, thanks for being my guest on this uh, episode. Uh, how's your day going today? It's going really, really well. Um, we just moved over to from San Francisco to Oakland to a new apartment and we're loving it and just sort of like learning the new neighborhood and um, enjoying enjoying being on the East Bay. So been in San awesome. Francisco for 12 years and so now we're seeing what the other side of the day looks like. Very cool. Well, congratulations on the new uh, apartment in Oakland. Uh, w- there's quite a few things I would love to talk to you about, but um, let me start off with this. So I, I know you have, uh, well, for f- full disclosure to all the audience, so Peter and I have worked together for about a year uh, at a company here in San Francisco, and we sort of, I think most of that time sat next to each other. <laughs> So we've learned quite a few things about each other. And I always found you very fascinating, uh, very intelligent, uh, amazing engineer. So you were sort of always on my, one of my, uh, on my wish list, one of the top people to uh, invite to be my guest. And I think after some um, coordination, we finally are here and talking together. So I, I know since I um, sort of left that organization that you have, so it became a certified technical architect. So first of all, um, or actually, just... well, I'm not a CTA, so I'm, okay. a, I'm an application architect. So okay, I'm on that journey. I, yeah, so that's, that's uh, still, still ahead. So I have to get the, uh, I'm halfway to, uh, to system architect and then I can, I can qualify to take the board exam for CTA. So I, there's a few more steps, but um, I'm on the journey. Got, got it. So congratulations, by the way. So that, that's awesome. So <clears throat> I guess, can you tell us about, so you have the, your certified uh, Salesforce application architect that, yeah. that, did I get it right? Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. So can you tell me a little bit more, like, I guess, what that specific uh, certificate is about and, um, you know, how did you prepare for it? Because I think that's something that a lot of us developers strive for. So it's always great to hear from someone that actually already went through the process and learn a little bit more about it. Yeah, I think the, the great way to look at this is, you know, you go to Trailhead and you go to certifications and then you can look at the architect journey and you can look at the pyramid um, for to see the application architect and the system architect. And um, you, it's basically... In some sense, it's sort of like a super badge of certifications where you have to collect, um, you know, three, four certifications. And then once you do that, then you get this um, fourth certification. Um, Sharing sharing invisibility. um, And then um, it was, um, you had to do your platform developer one, and then they recommended also the app builder certification, and of course, um, a um, the, the system admitted the basic system administrator certification, 
and then also um, the um, the sort of the data management um, certification, and that comprises the application engineer and our application architect. And then on the other side, the system architect. It is um, identity. Um, it is um, integration and um, the other one would be um, change management, I believe. And um, those three, if you get those three, then I believe you're, you're at the system architect, but I'll have to check, I'll have to look at. So. Very interesting. So I know you have multiple uh, certificates. So how does this, I guess, uh, or the certified application architect compare from the perspective of, um, I guess, how difficult it is compared to the others that you have? Um, well, I mean, the application architect, as I said before, is not a particular one certification. It's, um, it's basically what you're awarded after you get this collection of other ones. Got um, it. You know, I found after I haven't, I don't have that many certifications. I only have, have seven. So there's many, many people like that have, you know, you know, in the teens. Um, so I haven't, got, haven't got one in a while, but um, I've, I've found that some of these certifications have been really, really key. And I would say, recommend, even if you're not on an application architect journey or an, art, or an architect journey in general, um, my very favorite um, certification that I've done was the sharing and visibility certification that's part of the application architect. Um, I think for people who are working in as consultants or administrators, or they're really curious about like all the tools of, um, you know, configuring a Salesforce org for complex um, sharing and visibility um, um, requ um, requirement to implement complex sharing and visibility requirements from like programmatic ways to the declarative ways to implementing territories to all the different, to teams, to all the groups, um, all these different things that, that Salesforce has. And you've never really been able, you've, you know, you're given a requirement and you find, say, well, I could implement this three or four different ways, but which way should I really choose and why? And so um, that, I think that one certification has done, has been the best, you know, ROI on taking a cert that actually okay. had like real pragmatic uh, impact on my ability to work um, on Salesforce work and, and do pragmatic things. That's awesome. So I, I know you have a very rich career. So I do want to go a little bit back in time. I'm, um, I, from what I remember, you have studied uh, computer science in, in college. Um, can you maybe take us back to that program? I'm just kind of curious, like what type of uh, sort of like, I guess, what was the maybe the programming languages that you started with at the time? Oh, yeah, well, maybe I'll go back further is that- Yeah, sure. I didn't even start as a computer scientist. I started as a biologist. Oh, and, wow. okay. Um, you know, just sort of I, for people looking at careers that I think that a lot of times, you know, people coming from, you know, different disciplines into technology um, can do, have really, really great careers. Um, and so you, you don't necessarily, you can start and have a whole lot of different starting places. But yeah, I was working in a biology and I was working in a, in a lab um, doing cancer research and I published a couple of papers. And then I was gonna go on and get my PhD. And then I found this program at 
Cal Poly that, that was a master's degree for people who were wanting to get a master's degree coming from another discipline. And so um, I just sort of signed up for that. And then I went there and the intent was I was going to sort of, this is when biotechnology, this was back in the eighties and like Humulin had just been cloned. And, okay. and so I was at the place I was in, my lab was right next to Arthur Riggs, who'd done, you know, the Humulin gene for human insulin. So, and I was working in these labs and everything we were working hours and hours and hours doing all these things manually counting with little counters and manually and and so I was looking there it just was very obvious to me that there was a lot of space for like automation to kick in so I thought you know it probably there will be like a coming there'll be a coming revolution of um, of automation and um, biology coming and it turned out there was but then when I was in school, I just sort of said, you know, I sort of became really enamored with operating systems. And then I kind of had this idea for like a career path that I would start like at the lowest levels of computers, like the hardware and operating system. And then as I just went through and did other jobs, um, I would kind of move up the stack um, up from the operating system to system software, to the application level, and up to like being near users. And that's sort of like, you can kind of tell I'm pretty old now. And so I've kind of at the end of my career. And so um, that's kind of the journey that I've been on as I'm like kind of in that final phase with Salesforce where um, I'm kind of in this application phase where, you know, the stuff that I'm writing is not, is actually directly impacts users. And I really, really love that, that, you know, for most of my career, I was working as um, either as an OS kernel developer or as working at Oracle um, on the Oracle database. And like sort of my customers or people were other programmers um, that wrote or built software on top of the things I made. And um, now like um, I'm doing like um, LWCs and Lightning Web Components and some front end work and things like that. And my users are actual real users that are clicking the, clicking the mouse. And um, that I'm really, really feel super fortunate that sort of this journey that the flexibility that we have in technology that if we wanna take opportunities and then just go with them, we can move around. Um, and I think it also, for other people who might be afraid to make transitions and moves. Um, I think it's probably, I would be more afraid of staying in the same position too long and becoming stale and jaded and, and yep. stop growing because as long as you're growing and learning and enjoying things and learning and, and enjoying that process, I think you're going to generally do okay. Um, maybe you'll take a step. You might have to, you know, you might have to, you know, step back and say, okay, I tried this and it didn't work out. And, but then you try something else, but um, yeah, don't be afraid to try new things um, and grow and learn. You'll do better than sticking with, because, you know, like there's lots of technologies that I've learned in my life <laughs> that are like of absolutely no use today. And if I, if I stopped learning, I probably would have a hard time getting a job. <laughs> Yeah, I feel the same. When I started um, 
I don't think most of the companies that w- which had popular technologies at the time, maybe except Microsoft and Apple even exist today. Um, but yeah, I, I totally understand. One of the interesting fact that we sort of talked about in the past and um, is, is that you also worked, I believe prior to Oracle, you were at Next. Yeah. For some of the listeners that might not know, a company that Steve Jobs found after, I guess, he was booted from Apple. So that's basically, uh, I guess, one of the two companies that he was associated with before he went back to Apple is Pixar and Next. And Next, so, yeah. Yep. Can you um, maybe tell us a little bit about that experience, how that all happened, and, and how was your experience at Next? Uh, it was a wonderful experience. It was pretty short. Um, but I did get to be part of a group of engineers um, at the time, there were maybe 60 engineers. Um, and maybe fortunately or unfortunately, well, I'll, I'll back up. My first job out of um, Cal Poly, I worked for um, a mini computer company. And we were building um, sort of, we were trying to build like cl- clusters of mini computers to build um, supercomputers. And this was really. Um, and nobody, nobody builds these things anymore because now when we cluster, we just, you know, get a whole bunch of EC2 boxes on the, on, on, um, on the, the, on AWS or the cloud. But then that's the way IT was, it was on-prem and people bought, you know, spent a huge amount of money, um, um, buying hardware and, and paying people to run it. And so I was at a company that was trying to build this hardware. And um, I did a great job there. Um, and um, when I was at Cal Poly, I, I, I studied this operating system called Mock, and um, I became super enamored with it. And um, it turned out to be that that was the operating system that Next wanted to use. And so I done some I done some some OS work at at um, at Encore, which was also a Mock company. And then um, it looked like Encore was going to go out of business, and I really loved my job, and I loved my boss there especially. But then I got um, asked if I was interested in, in um, interviewing at Next, and I was completely enamored. And sort of, I don't know, my first computer was an Apple II when I was, um, I don't know, probably 16 years old, and I'd been an Apple fan ever since. Um, and I'd applied for Apple before, but I'd never gotten very far in the process. And so um, it was kind of an opportunity to kind of um, work at a company and work with kind of a legendary group of people. Um, many of the people from working at Next at that time were, were pretty much handpicked by Steve Jobs from like Xerox Park and SRI and from he'd pretty much had a team of people. And so I was only there about eight months, but um, I came there, I was hoping to work on the OS, continue to work on the OS. And then probably two weeks before, it was one of those things where, you know, you're hired for one job and um, then they say, you know, there's a big change and that they next to uh, announced that they were, you know, going out of the hardware business and they were going to sell software and they're, they're not even going to sell, you know, so um, they weren't even going to sell their OS anymore. They were going to sell this sort of um, user level 
um, software services package. And so the, my job had been eliminated, but they assured me and they gave me a different job. And so um, for about eight months, I worked on their portable distributed objects, um, and which was kind of a competitor to Corba. You, I don't know, do you remember Corba at all? I sort of, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I can't remember what it was, but I, yeah, I can't so remember the name. You have to go yeah. back even farther where before, yeah. before there was SOAP, before there was REST, um, mm -hmm. There were these protocols um, that were sort of like trying to take, because um, everything back then was sort of like fat clients. And so they were looking for libraries that would connect um, these fat clients to databases and other networked applications. And so there was, they were the sort of libraries you would link into, it's like a Windows app, or if it was on a Mac, something, something like that. And yeah, so portable this PDO was one of those objects or one of those um, technologies. So I worked there for about eight months and um, that was like it impacted me. Well, it was kind of like, it was interesting to be sort of like um, at a place where, you know, you've kind of dreamt about, I don't know if you've had this experience where if there was a company where you really, 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 really wanted to work there so badly, you didn't almost care whether um, you were cleaning the bathroom or whatever, you just <laughs> wanted more so you could be there with those people. And that was kind of like my, my experience. Like I wasn't really enjoying my work so much because it wasn't really yeah. my thing, but I really enjoyed like um, going to, for instance, um, at that time, um, Steve Jobs was mostly working at Pixar, and okay. he it was the, the, it was the time where Toy Story was getting was first ramping up, and um, so probably for better or worse, for most of the time Steve Jobs wasn't there. So like he would be in Emeryville um, about ninety percent of the time, like probably nine nine days out of ten, and one day out of ten. He would go from Emeryville and he would come over to um, Redwood, Redwood City and he would um, be in the offices at Next. And during those, and probably every other time um, he was there, he, we would have an all hands and they would talk, we'd get to talk and listen. And um, the big thing was, was just, um, I, the big takeaway I would give to people would be just um, the absolute, like, charisma of the man um okay like like the people at next i would say were without a doubt like the, the smartest group of people most exceptional group of people that i've ever worked with and so we would all go in and we and many of these people had been there working there for years and so they've they've talked they've worked closely with steve for many many years and then at the at the, and the, at the end of one of these talks we would all be mesmerized. Every single <laughs> one of us would be completely mesmerized. Um, we were totally ready to drink the Kool-Aid. And um, then, you know, it would be like two or three hours. We would be like walking on like three feet above the ground. We'd be all very, very happy that we just talked to Steve. And then, you know, um, about two or three hours later, we would start to come down and we would start thinking about the things he said and said, what? 
you know, I realized he just canceled my project or something. (laughs) (laughs) Like all the awful things that had happened. And um, that, you know, so it was, it was interesting. So when um, Steve Jobs passed away, it was really, really tough Mm -hmm. um, to like, it really hit me hard because I felt like the industry really lost a very, very special person, even though he was, in a lot of ways, you know, I would say a number of the people were very, very scared. And I, and I got a lot of stories there about like yeah. kind of crazy things that um, Steve Jobs had done. Um, but um, pretty much universally, he, he was really, really loved. Yeah, that's very interesting. That's fascinating to me. I have um, lived in Palo Alto a few years back and that's about it. I was actually in Palo Alto, I was working um, and living in Palo Alto when he passed away. And then I think shortly afterwards, Walter Isaacson's book, um, Steve Jobs came out and I got the audio book and I happened to uh, ride my bike every day t- to work. So I would listen to it. So I probably listened to it several times uh, over and over. And it was just fascinating, you know, living in Palo Alto where he, you know, I think partially lived, he lived in Woodside too. But just all the stories, you know, Walter Isaacson interviewed a lot of the co-workers, a lot of the engineers, executives that were part of his team from the early days through Next, through Pixar. Then also I write some books about the, the, the one of the founders of Pixar that published. So there's a lot of also information about Steve Jobs. There are multiple books. So it's just fascinating talking to you because you actually saw the guy. So for me, it's impossible to imagine, but I'm just fascinated based everyone else's story, what you just mentioned about his charisma and things like that. Uh, so yeah. that, that's, that's a very fascinating story. Uh, so yeah. then you... One thing, I'll just yeah, mention go ahead. Walter Isaacson's book. Um, mm-hmm. I just want to give a huge plus one to that book. Um, mm-hmm. Like I read that book and I found it to be like... And, you know, usually I found that the more you know about something, um, the more inaccurate you find, like reports that you read Mm -hmm. about things. Um, And I found that book to be amazingly um, accurate as far as the experience that I had at Next. And um, it really hit me a lot in that um, I hadn't actually realized that um, Steve Jobs and Larry Ellison were good friends. And... So I left, I left next to Oracle one week before the buyout. It was like one, it was one week. And, um, and this is the other, buyout of next by of Apple. Apple. By Apple, exactly. Where, where Steve Jobs went back to Apple. And um, <clears throat> then that same week that there were people coming from Oracle to next and that just joined, like there were like several people that joined from Oracle to next. And um, then it wasn't until I read that book that I sort of, uh, I realized like the person who hired me into Oracle was um, Colette Arnaud, which was Larry Ellison's personal recruiter. Like the, usually she didn't work on, didn't hire engineers. She hired, um, you know, executives who would look for people who would head up whole organizations or different, you know, definitely not somebody at my level. And, um, you know, when I read that book and I realized, I don't know this for sure, but I, I mean, it was very, very strange that she would be calling me and recruiting me to go um, one week before the buyout to go to Oracle. 
and then other people from Oracle coming <laughs> to next. I, I just sort of speculate that sort of during these talks they were having, that they were looking at um, their like their teams and they were sort of trading people back and forth. And I, you know, like my like at next, I was never totally fit in there. I, I, I loved my job and I did well. And I, but I certainly never thought that Steve really like knew who I was. Um, I did some presentations and things, but I had never, never thought I had any recognition. But the fact that sort of I got picked up and like we got traded, I got traded to the other team um, as part mm -hmm. of that, that, um, that merger, um, it really touched me a lot. And it, it made me feel that like there was a good chance that Steve was aware of me somehow. And then it was kind of like um, pretty consistent with my observation that um, like the man had a huge amount of um, like detail and understanding about like the companies he was running and managing. Like to some people, like he was like, you know, they referred to him sort of as the eye of Sauron, where he was like always looking at everything and like into people's jobs at, at a minute level. And, you know, how frightening that could be if, you know, you sort of had his attention and he didn't like what you were doing or something. But um, just sort of like how incredible that is where you have someone who, this is when he was, you know, it was like, he was in the middle of, he was doing, you know, a, a huge merger between Next and Apple. He just finished, you know, this huge deal with Pixar and Disney for distribution. Um, he had just like so many like details going on in his mind that, um, you know, the actual people that were working for him and the engineers, especially, um, that he was actually really thinking about them. Um, and, um, the people who stayed at Next, they ended up, of course, going to Apple and they pretty much took over the whole place. So, you know, the, the Apple, the iOS devices and the, and the MacBooks that we see today are pretty much Next machines um, from top to bottom. There's none of the original um, Apple technology is there. It's completely Next. And you, even if you look at the libraries, they're prefixed with NS and that stands for Next Step, which is for the Next Step libraries. So... Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, even even you know, Steve, uh, you know, I I I am you know. There's a lot of sort of positive and some negative stuff circling, uh, circulating around about him in different books. I think most of people, you know, regardless if they like him or not, no, you know, are don't dispute the fact that was, he was absolutely brilliant and you know like revolutionized number of. Um, uh, things within the tech industry itself. So even, you know, we're both now part of the Salesforce ecosystem. I read uh, Mark Benioff's book where he also has a chapter about the app store and yeah. also working as a intern at Apple and, you know, being, you know, befriending to a certain level also Steve Jobs. Uh, so even Steve Jobs actually touched a, based on the fact that he has given some good advice when even uh, at the time when also Mark left Oracle to start after his um, some period of time to start also Salesforce, but he also went to Steve to get advice on what to do with the company and, and how to strategize and things of that nature. 
So I guess Steve is kind of follows you throughout your career because he's, he has a little, little bit of a shadow over Salesforce too. Um, but so technically you left and uh, moved to Oracle. You spent, um, you know, number of years at Oracle. Yeah, like I can't even remember. It's like more than 10 years there. there. And um, working on clustering, um, database clustering. So interesting that the product that um, Salesforce runs on, um, which is a cluster of Oracle databases, is directly the product that I was working on. Oh, wow. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. So it's interesting. Sometimes, sometimes every once in a while, you'll see these aura errors pop up um, mm -hmm. in Salesforce that'll percolate somehow from the Salesforce instance all the way up to the app server, up to the user. I think it's funny, but um, it is. It's like when, we, when I first joined there, um, like it was at the end of the project, but it was Oracle 8 and it was project big which was um, the partitioning project. And then um, I was working on OPS, which was Oracle Parallel Server, which was the clustering project that became real application clusters. And those two things com combined are the things that I think that are that the, the, basically this heavy partitioning um, plus the clustering is the way is basically those are the foundations of the multi-tenant architecture in Salesforce. So um, where we, when you build these pods that um, where you have all these different tenants running on there and it was this hard partitioning, each partition is it's partitioned by Salesforce organization. So I think it's 00D is the prefix. So that's a prefix that you have all these different orgs running on the same um, database um, and app servers running on top of that. So. It's, it, 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 it is kind of nice to have that kind of continuity of sticking yep. there. I know, I know that Salesforce really, really, really had a pretty big initiative um, to try and remove their dependency from um, Oracle and then move on to Postgres. And they funded a, um, a development team over in the East Bay for a while and they finally gave up on it. And they ended up writing, continuing to write Oracle big checks. So, um, in a sense, in a sense, Salesforce has taken a lot of the business from Oracle, especially at the lower end. Um, used to be, you know, small businesses even would have an Oracle, their own Oracle database, and medium businesses, and then uh, large businesses would have data centers with Oracle's databases in them, and that's kind of all disappeared. And a lot of that has moved to Salesforce. But um, it's interesting that through that Oracle was able to um, maintain, be relevant, and be the infrastructure on top of that, on, on top on top of what that was built. I didn't really particularly predict that. I thought that open source. I'd seen what what had happened with Linux, and I'd seen that you know there were all these proprietary Unixes, right? There was AIX and SunOS and all these different hardware vendors, and then pretty much. Um, Linux came and ate their lunch, you know, mm -hmm. and I sort of was looking at proprietary databases and I was feeling like that was likely gonna happen in the database world too. Um, and um, to their credit, Oracle has hung around and um, they've remained relevant and part by, by, powering, um, by power, powering Salesforce. Yeah, that's very interesting. I, I uh, remember I was few years back or 
been almost 10 years now at Oracle and Salesforce at the time was, you know, a tiny company compared to Oracle, but today actually has a larger market cap. Um, they do. They, I noticed that almost, um, I don't know, they're like both around 200 billion, I guess, but Salesforce is definitely on the north side of that. So yeah, exactly. I think it's about 40 billion difference or something on that huge number. Uh, cool. So then you, uh, uh, so that that's a great continuation through the career with the technology, but um, I'm wondering how did you get into Salesforce? So you sort of went from slightly different. Um, yeah, completely segment. different things. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah, C and yeah, I was programming in C and then as a systems programmer, that's pretty much all you'd ever done. And um, I was ready for a break and I, you know, I'd done pretty well. I've been at Oracle for a long time. The Oracle stock had done pretty well. So I just decided to take a break. And that break turned into like almost 10 years where I didn't work really. And so then I needed to go back to work. And I found myself in a situation where, um, you know, I guess I could have tried to go back and doing what I was before, but it really seemed like an opportunity to, you know, just do something completely different. And, um, so I started studying JavaScript um, and like right now still JavaScript is my favorite language, um, but it's really hard to break into technology if you've been out for a while. And so I had a recommendation from a friend who said, well, why don't you go take a Salesforce administrator training class? And so I signed up at um, the JVS, Jewish, Jewish Vocational Service and Did you know um, much about uh, Salesforce at that point, or was that I, I knew something totally random? Okay. I knew nothing about it at that time. You know, I like when when someone suggested this, I looked at it and I I signed up for my first developer account, which I still have that first developer account, and I looked at it and everything. This was before Lightning came out, and I looked at it and I thought, "Wow, this is looks." like pretty awful, actually, <laughs> I, was not, I was not impressed, especially coming from like my background from Next sort of had trained me to have like, sort of like look at things, the aesthetics of things and sort of um, critically. And I found, the, you know, um, I wasn't impressed. I wasn't impressed, but, yeah. um, but, it, but anyway, I, I took the class and I studied hard and I passed my certification and um, I think, you know, Salesforce kind of, it, it kind of fools you sometimes because it, it looks like so simple and easy. Yeah. Um, first start become, start using it. And then um, you, you can kind of just keep going deeper and deeper into it. And it's really surprising um, how deep it goes. Yeah. Um, how um, I'm very impressed. Cause like there are, I think, when Salesforce was first um, developed, the marketplace was um, small businesses from 10 to 100 uh, employees, right? And so it was sort of this, you know, this sweet class of like companies that were really didn't, couldn't have their, there was no way they, these companies could really afford to have their own DBAs or development teams, but they had these needs to do automation in a database that was easy. And so that was their first market. And so um, that it's kind of amazing to have a technology 
that's still like still that that market is still like people use Salesforce but only have 10 employees or 100 employees. Um, but like it's also common right now, um, you know, that we've when we've scaled our, our service cloud instance, we have thousands of agents um, using our Salesforce instance for service cloud. We have hundreds of reps, um, you know, um, logged in. And so, and we have, you know, pretty large Salesforce instance. So it's just been, I'm very impressed with the product that it can scale like all these ranges of things. And so yep. I think it's very interesting how um, like, you know, it's one of these, these, what's the, um, the, the, the um, story about like the, the blind men who, who are, you know, going up to the elephant and they're asking to describe the different things and all they can see is the trunk or the tail or the tusk or something. And so your, your experience about like what Salesforce is, is very, very dependent upon like you, the, the interaction that you've had with it. And so, but the product and the ecosystem is absolutely enormous. And um, the capabilities always, I keep getting surprised about all the different things that you can use on the platform. And I think um, now with like things like Salesforce functions that are coming along down the pipeline, yes. um, just sort of the, the platform that will pretty much be uh, limitless um, where the things where you can stay on the platform where, where before you would have to go off the platform. You yeah, have to do. I, I totally agree. I was, um my experience is, is a little bit different because I got introduced to Salesforce in 2004 and it was very random just because prior to that, I have worked for a telecom company, which was also an SI and they were, I was being trained on Siebel implementation. So this was back in the early 2000s where before really cloud computing, where, you know, if you have a company with thousand users, you have to basically, for the most part, install the client with a disk on each computer, yeah. et cetera. And it was just like uh, such a expensive process, first of all. Um, but then very, just because of that experience, another client asked me in 2004 to maybe help them implementing Salesforce. So this was the time when you know, they were really what you're just saying, focusing on small business. You know, they had that slogan or uh, the, uh, like no software, which really mm -hmm. means like you don't need to all these crazy disks, stuff like that. But I remember it was like, uh, you know, like these four basic objects. It was just like basically what you have called today sales cloud. So Salesforce CRM, it was known back then. And you know, it's a little bit of like admin console or portal where you can actually maybe do some permissioning, users, you know, security settings, stuff like that. And that's pretty much it. What fascinates me is from that little application in the cloud, they have created this monster <laughs> that that yeah. is like a you know 200 something billion dollar uh, company with um, some I don't know how many they're claiming there's like three million developers worldwide. I don't know if that's true or not, but I'm sure it's a massive number. Um, and I found very like maybe 10 years back, I used to live over on Russian Hill and just I used to like go to Telegraph Hill jogging, stuff like that. So I found this picture somewhere from like early 2000s of Mark and Parker Harris. They their first office was some little apartment they rented like one of those little Victorian buildings um, on Telegraph Hill. 
and you know they had these big massive monitors on there and they're just kind of coding away so that's yeah, fascinating yeah yeah so whenever i go to to dreamforce and there's like 140,000 people i'm like wow <laughs> that picture just flashes through my head of this tiny little apartment and them you know hacking away um very interesting so then you continued uh you know basically your your salesforce odyssey uh today uh do you want to maybe tell us a little bit what, what you're doing today and where are you today you know um let's see now i'm just a, i'm a salesforce developer um mm -hmm. and i've gotten like um since we've been growing so much at coinbase um i've had an opportunity to work on a lot of things um I've gotten an opportunity to work on some managed packages um, and second generation managed packages and um, built out um, built out our REST service for um, our, our service cloud. So like when we had, we've had some days back there where we had um, tens of thousands of service requests per day. So um, we're working really hard right now to, um, as we build things, um, we've got a, a, a team that's been growing pretty much exponentially, um, adding stuff is like, um, it's really hard. We've been in this, in a case where we're, we're sort of building all the time. And then I think we're looking at, you know, more like not just implement requirements, but sort of how are we going to architect things so that we can continue to scale? Because um, if we keep just sort of throwing things at things um, one by one, um, even Salesforce, which is super, super forgiving, is gonna start to complain. And so um, I think right now, the work that we're doing now, the focus that I'm trying, we're, we're having, I think is, is architectural work of taking our Salesforce instance and sort of, like um, as the airplane is flying, we're gonna start, you know, putting new engines on and stuff like that um, to try and move so that we can keep our, because the company is growing at a, um, at a like a parabolic rate. And so we sort of have to sort of have our implementation be ready for things before it's needed. And so we're okay. trying to be proactive in our buildup of things. So we're looking at code path, we're looking at um, like, you know, we're looking at like how to balance um, flow or decorative work versus programmatic work. We're looking at how to break work across teams as we, as we sort of have lots of developers working in the sales, um, the same Salesforce instance. And it's all kind of new for us. Um, I sort of feel like the experience that I came back from like working at Oracle where there were thousands of developers kind of, you know, helps point a picture of like, at least knowing what the problems are gonna be and then sort of like trying to um, help figure out like how to divide things so that different people can work without um, stepping on each other's toes. Yeah, that's an interesting topic. So what, I guess, what are some of the biggest challenging scaling a team uh, considering the fact that, you know, you also have to scale up or establish some kind of a DevOps process. Yeah, well, we recently put in a DevOps process and we have a CI CD pipeline. So we're doing continuous delivery now. 
Um, one of the things that, you know, like that makes it easy in a way, um, if you don't have a lot of architecture is that uh, um, architecture tends to be really flat. So you have object, trigger, handler, um, test. Um, and if you just sort of divide things by this team is in, is in charge of this um, object, and then they sort of figure out um, not conflicting on it. Uh, the problem happens when you have key objects. I think um, sort of like case and opportunity are the ones that usually hit um, hit organizations because there's they they touch a lot of different um, verticals usually, and there's a lot of customization and optimization on those. That um, and that's where we're at. Is we're sort of I'm probably in the next you know six months probably looking at our case object and the optimization on that uh, and the automations on that and, and optimizing that and sort of figuring out like um, a way in which we can scale to even more developers, like 50 developers um, that are potentially all modifying things related wow. to Kate. <laughs> yeah. So what are some of the, you mentioned flow, you know, the sort of the, the concept of flow has been around for many years now, but I think just over maybe the last couple of years, Salesforce, at least at least their marketing, but then also you can tell through the technology improvements have been really investing a lot of money, making it a lot more, I guess, flexible for some of the developer development tasks. I guess, what are your thoughts? Where do you see the flow? Like, do you, do you see any improvements? Uh, can it at one point maybe replace a lot of the custom code? What are your thoughts? Well, I think I think the reality is is that well, the the, the thing I'm trying to push at or I'm, the vision I have is that we're going to have flow and we're going to have um, we're going to have triggers and apex and probably phase out our process builder at workflow. Um, we use workflow for, for some limited things, but most of the decorative um, automation move into flow. For one, it's a lot faster. It's a lot more expressive. And then um, the other thing that um, we're kind of looking at, or I'm looking at is this, um, this framework from a fellow at um, Google called the Action Framework that can basically coordinate both um, flow and apex triggers within the same framework. So that um, like- so, sorry, so is that a, the action framework is, is the, uh, so basically I, as most of us know, Google is a big user of Salesforce. Is that specifically that their internal Salesforce teams have built or is that some yeah. kind of a product that they have? That can be also used uh, yeah. within the Salesforce environment. It's an open source um, library that they've built. And the idea is that you can orchestrate both flow and apex triggers from okay. a common framework. So you can have deterministic code. So I, I think pretty much one of the big battles um, that every organization has, where that has both um, administrators and developers in there is that they conflict on the automation on, on basically after and before automation, save op operation on objects where um, you know people have written triggers and they've written these tests and then somebody does builds a process builder and it breaks the trigger in the test and they can't deploy. And then um, 
the admin asks for the developer to help to see why their process builder has broken their um, test and they're mad at the developer for it. Um, and so the, I think every developer probably has experienced this where um, it's pretty frustrating experience. So like what I'm looking what I'm hoping to say is, is that if is have a framework um, where the um, order of execution of both the declarative and the programmatic automation um, is deterministic. And so I think that will that will help that'll you know fix a lot of the ordering race conditions that you see, um, hopefully reduce a lot of recursion. Um, so to help performance, um, be able to aggregate data, for instance, basically take um, Sockle queries that you run in code and then pass that data down for use in flows so that the flows aren't doing these queries over and over again um, and things like that. So um, it's an ambitious project. We're gonna look at probably look at other, other um, objects other than case to get started with because that would be a really tough one for us. We're gonna see dip our waters, but the, it's the action framework. And, and if you Google it, you'll find, um, um, you can watch the talks on it and I'm pretty excited about it and um, <clears throat> would love to chat with other people about it if they've, they've implemented it and what their experience is outside of Google. Um, yeah, that's very interesting. I, I definitely have to um, check it out myself. Um, what are some other interesting technologies within the software or Salesforce ecosystem? Uh, you mentioned just recently that you have been doing working a bit with Lightning Web Components. Um, uh, how do you how, I love how do you like that? I love them. I think everyone who's done an LWC, and I think I have yet to find anyone who doesn't like working in working in LWCs. Um, especially if they've had some experience working doing Aura components, um, that LWCs are a lot more fun, a lot more powerful. Um, there's a huge amount of work um, that Salesforce has done. It's sort of the, they have the whole um, LWC open source initiative, which is yep. sort of, you can see, um, and I've played around with that a little bit and you can kind of see all the things that are kind of coming in the future, maybe. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, um, but it's really one of the things that makes um, um, sort of Salesforce a joy to work on is that, you know, it's very difficult. Like if you worked, were out of the ecosystem, you pretty much are forced to specialize as a front end or a back end engineer, um, really. Um, but in Salesforce, we really have an opportunity um, because this, the framework makes things simple that we can actually. Um, build UIs and we have pretty good tools to, to build programmatic UIs using LWCs. Now, I think Salesforce did a brilliant job um, with LWCs. They had, they, you know, everything has, they've done hasn't been like a complete win, but um, I think LWCs are a complete win. Yeah, I agree. I'm wondering, uh, considering that you're working for um, basically like a crypto exchange and I, I don't know, there's, it's a lot more today than, than, what Coinbase was when it first started, but um, I know also maybe some couple of years back, Salesforce was toying around with some sort of like a blockchain project. Yeah. Uh, have you, you heard anything about data program? Yeah, oh yeah, that's true. I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, so um, they've, as far as I know, are like they they've discontinued their beta, and uh -huh. I think 
The problem was is, and, and I'm speaking from, you know, probably a crypto company, that Coinbase is very much looking at um, the future of crypto is on public blockchains, not private blockchains, mm -hmm. and looking at sort of, you know, the Ethereum blockchain um, and other blockchains, but it's definitely public blockchains. And I think um, Salesforce perhaps took a misstep with their blockchain product, um, with creating private, like creating private blockchains and just the application sort of, I think the an analogy there is that um, you look at the difference between the internet and public networks versus private networks. And you just see the, the power of the public network of possibilities of things you can build on them versus private. Um, the big problem with private blockchains is that no one, no third, third parties really don't want to build applications on your private blockchain, right? Yeah. Um, so they work in these situations where you have these consortiums of companies maybe that are, can all agree on to use this, you know, one private block, but those scenarios are kind of limited. Um, yeah. But areas where people want to communicate um, globally across the internet um, on a, in a, peer-to-peer, -peer, those are pretty common. And so um, sales, I mean, Coinbase is, is heavily like pointing towards like building things that are um, on public on public blockchains. And I, I actually have been working on a POC implementing a, a Ethereum wallet inside, inside Salesforce. Oh, so, wow. That's, that's very so interesting. I can, do, I can do that on testnet anyway. I can send transactions. Right. I have... LWCs and basically use the same technology of using a managed package to hold mm -hmm. um, private keys, um, make them opaque um, for security. Um, so, so you basically you could natively enable um, Salesforce with, you know, to talk to the Ethereum blockchain. So that's, that'll be my, probably my um, hacker present or my, my hackathon presentation this fall. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's that's awesome. That's very exciting. Uh, are there any sort of interesting things happening at at Coinbase in reference to any of the cryptocurrencies? Anything that you're able to share with the audience? Um, I think um, one thing is I think we're just like Coinbase is going to be really de embracing decentralization. Um, okay, I can't say more than that, but is that um, just really look to embrace um, public blockchains and decentralization. And which is kind of strange because Coinbase is itself is a centralized service, right? Exactly. So um, I think um, I'm very happy to be there. I think we're pretty much transitioning away from centralization to becoming a um, sort of blockchain crypto native company, company more and more. So to basically open up DeFi and things like that. So it's pretty exciting. Excellent. Well, just in closing, I just want to, you know, thank you obviously for, you know, being a guest. This was amazing, you, but then yeah. no problem. And I think also if, uh, you know, any Salesforce developer are listening, Coinbase is hiring. It's a great company, uh, great team, smart team. So I would definitely recommend it. So Peter, thank you and enjoy the rest of your uh, afternoon. All right. Thank you, Vogue.